0: Psalm 57 to the chief musician set to do not destroy a miktam of David when he fled from Saul into the cave be merciful to me O God be merciful to me for my soul trusts in you and in the shadow of your wings I will make my refuge until these calamities have passed by I will cry out to God most high to God who performs all things for me he shall send from heaven and save me He reproaches the one who would swallow me up, Selah. God shall send forth his mercy and his truth. My soul is among lions. I lie among the sons of men who are set on fire, whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. They have prepared a net for my steps. My soul is bowed down. They have dug a pit before me into the midst of it. They themselves have fallen. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and give praise. Awake, my glory. Awake, lute and harp. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing to you among the nations. For your mercy reaches unto the heavens and your truth unto the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be above all the earth. Okay, we're in Esther chapter 9. We have two chapters, but three sermons to go. We're going to go from Esther 9 through verse 17 today. So Esther 9, 1 through 17, this is entitled, Rest from Their Enemies. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, the opposite occurred. And that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The Jews gathered together in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm, and no one could withstand them, because fear of them fell upon all people. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. And in Shushan, the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed five hundred men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Poratha, Adalia, Aridatha, harmashta Arisai, Aridai, and Vejazatha. Ari Gato, the, yeah, <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Before I go on, I want you to think, what is that picturing? Because everything in this book is picturing something. I want you yeah. to think about it. All right, we'll get to it on the final sermon. On that day, verse 11, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the 10 sons of Haman. What have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. Then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, according to today's decree, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives had rest from their enemies and killed 75,000 of their enemies, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. And on the 14th of the month, they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness. The verses today speak of rest twice, but there is a difference in what they are saying, as you will see. There is a place of rest and there is a state of rest. The two are not the same, but they can be united when the conditions are right. I live in a really nice place because my grandfather moved to where we are 70 years ago. It was his place of rest, even though he continued to work for many years after arriving there. My dad found that it suited him as well, and he stayed. Even though he also continued to work, he had a place of rest. And now I live on that same beautiful island. It is a place of rest, but I assure you that I don't get much rest. The mornings are early, the days are long, the dogs are many, and the grass never seems to stop growing. Add in four part-time jobs and full-time work for the church times 27.3628 and rest, even when I'm asleep, isn't a state of rest. And yet... I have the same place of rest that dad and grandpa enjoyed, and I hope that each of you has a place of rest that you can call your place of rest as well, even if you have not begun to rest. But more than a house, I would hope that you have found the true place, capital P, of rest. Our text verse comes from Hebrews chapter 4, it's verses 2 and 3. For indeed, the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. For we who have believed do enter that rest. Okay, what does this have to do with the book of Esther? Well, there is rest, and then there is a place of rest. The Bible says that for those who have believed in the gospel, they have entered their rest. I'm guessing that most of you have done this thing. And yet, I'm pretty sure that most of you also have lots to do from day to day. Is your place of rest in Christ a respite from your labors? Surely it is so. And yet you still have work to do in Christ. Paul speaks about that in his epistles. Ephesians chapter 6 is a great place to see that even though we have entered our rest, there is ongoing work to do. And is something more than just mowing the lawn. It is an ongoing battle. Someday the battle will end. Israel found that out for a short time during the reign of the Persian Empire. They will find it out in a more complete way some wondrous day ahead. We already know that it's true, and we are just waiting on the day that it occurs. These are truths which are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is the fear of Mordecai. It's verses 1 through 5. Verse 1. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. As has been seen several other times with verses in the book of Esther, this opening verse of chapter 9 is a long one. Several clauses preceded the actual narrative, thus setting up a suspenseful period of waiting between what occurred in chapter 8 and what will occur in chapter 9. Each additional word introduced adds to that suspense, and it makes the reader eagerly anticipate what will come about on the date set by that ruling edict. This is especially suspenseful because nothing of the intervening months is spoken of. In verse 8:12, the giving of the date for the coming events was cited, and then that was followed by a few verses concerning the transmission of the edict and the joy which accompanied it. Now, immediately after that, the date cited in the edict has arrived. It is the situation of this eagerly anticipated date, which is next described. Verse 1 continues, On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them. The word translated as hoped is sabar. It is derived from a primitive root, meaning to scrutinize. Thus, by implication, it signifies to wait expectantly. One can see the subjects of the kingdom who were hoping to enrich themselves off of the plunder of the Jews, almost drooling at the chance to do so. These Jews had moved into their area, established themselves, kept separate from them, and had probably become wealthy. Now the people envied what they had not worked for, and they eagerly anticipated taking that which they had not earned." It is a story often repeated in the history of the Jewish people, and it is a story which is also repeated in the history of the shiftless of many societies who desire to have what others have, but they are unwilling to earn on their own. In the case of these enemies of the Jews, the Bible next uses the word shalat, meaning to domineer over or be empowered. They had a royal decree which allowed them to take by force from those who had earned, and they hungrily waited to do so. Again, it is no different than any governmental decree which would redistribute from those who earn to those who are unwilling to do so. The desire for unmerited gain leads to forceful seizures. This is the state of things on the 13th day of the 12th month of Adar. The Persian Empire had been anticipating this day, wondering who would prevail, The day has arrived, and the outcome was finally realized with the words, verse 1 continuing, the opposite occurred. The word is hafak. It means to turn or overturn. Translations seem to revel in finding new ways of describing the marvelous turning of what was hoped for. I'm going to give you a couple examples of some of the translations of these few words. The tables were turned, just the opposite happened. Quite the opposite happened, but it turned out the opposite happened. The exact opposite happened. The reverse occurred. It was turned to the contrary, but instead the Jews turned things around. Things were turned around, contrary to expectations, the case being altered, and finally, and it is turned. The variety of translations shows the eager attempt by the translators to capture the epitome of the irony which occurred, which was, verse 1 continues, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who hated them. The same word for overpowered, which was just used of the hope of the enemies, shalat, is used again here. Those looking for a bunch of freebies at the Jews' expense wouldn't find what they were hoping for. They were looking to overpower the Jews and profit off of labors which they had not earned, but instead they were overpowered by the Jews. The apple cart had been upturned, the dice had been rolled and come up amiss, and the trap that they had set sprang up and ensnared them instead. And the reason was because of the allowances of Mordecai's second edict. Verse 2, the Jews gathered together in their cities. This was exactly what was authorized in verse eight eleven. It said there, The king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together. As a point of clarification, the term their cities means the cities wherever they lived, not cities which were Jewish cities. Verse 2 continues, Throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. The implication of the words here is that the Jews remained scattered, literally, throughout the entire kingdom. There were 127 provinces, and the wording points to a dispersion of the Jews throughout all of them. This then is one of the punishments promised to the people of Israel for their own disobedience. In Deuteronomy 28, verse 64, it says, Then the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. The dispersion recorded here confirms the words of the Lord found in the books of Moses. Verse 2 continues, to lay hand on those who sought their harm. It is debated among scholars whether this was defensive only or offensive. The reason for this is that some scholars attempt to justify a more moral stand by the Jews by defending themselves and not being those who would take offense in such matters. However, the wording of the edict and the wording found later in this chapter both allow and confirm offensive fighting on the part of the Jews once they are threatened. It has been and it continues to be a trait of the Jewish people to defend themselves as needed, but to also go on the offense as the situation demands. Nothing is wrong with this, and there is no reason to see this as wrongdoing. It is the standard practice of all wise people groups throughout history. First 2 going on, and no one could withstand them because fear of them fell upon all people. The scholar Brentz states of these words, We have above, speaking of what we just saw, such an example in Haman, who himself was hung on the cross, which he had prepared for Mordecai. So the Egyptians were themselves overwhelmed in the sea to which they had driven the Israelites in order to overwhelm them. So also Saul, who had driven David over to the Philistines, that they might destroy him, was himself destroyed by the Philistines. He is correct. These and numerous other such episodes are recorded in Scripture and in history. It is assured that the enemies of God who attempt to destroy his people are the ones who are ultimately converted or they are destroyed in a manner similar to that in which they intended. And this cannot be equated with karma, or with divine retribution for a like-for-like like manner. Verse 3, And all of the officials of the provinces The satraps, the governors, and all those doing the king's work helped the Jews because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. The list of these officials includes pretty much all of the governmental officials in the kingdom, from the top all the way down. They are said to have helped the Jews, but the Hebrew word is literally translated as lifted up. In other words, they would have given support as needed, Be it encouragement, praise, government assistance as necessary, material support, and so on. They had the backing of the regional and local officials in order to assure their success. And the reason for this lifting up is explicitly stated in the words, or because the fear of Mordecai fell upon them. This is the explicitly stated reason. He was the highest ruler in the land behind the king himself, and he held governmental authority over their jobs and their livelihood. However, there are also two other reasons for this. The first is obviously that it has become known that Esther was Jewish. Though this is unstated, it would not have harmed their cause at all. And the second reason is just as certain. The Lord had directed the events to occur as they had We've already been told in verse 8:17 that many people became Jews because of the edict which was published by Mordecai. The fear of the unseen God who directed the affairs of the Jews would have been present in the people's minds, even if it was a subliminal presence. The Lord is directed, and the people were affected by his guiding hand, whether they realized it or not. As a squiggle for your brain. The words here include the last use of the word aharshtarpan, or satrap, in the Bible. It was seen once in Ezra and three times here in the book of Esther. Now it is toast. But as a great biblical fun fact for you, it is spelled with a connecting letter here, the letter vav, thus making it tied for the longest word in the entire Old Testament, containing 11 letters. Two other words are this long. One is found in Ezekiel chapter 7, and the other is in Ezekiel chapter 16. As far as the fear of Mordecai on these people, the next verse says, verse 4, for Mordecai was great in the king's palace. Three clauses in this one verse show us the level of greatness which Mordecai had attained. First, he was great in the king's palace. This is a note of distinguish, but it doesn't necessarily signify anything more. There are people who are considered great in our president's cabinet but they remain obscure beyond that point. There were seven royal counselors to the king of Persia, but their names may not have been known outside of the citadel of Shushan. However, with Mordecai, it goes on to say, verse 4 continues, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. Mordecai wasn't just a powerful figure within the main government, but his authority and certainly his leadership skills caused his fame to spread throughout all of the provinces of the empire. The word fame here is the Hebrew word Shoma. It is rather rare being seen just four times. It gives the sense of being known through having been heard of. In other words, the fame of Mordecai came because of the words spoken of him. The very name when spoken was one which was esteemed. And as a result, verse 4 continues, For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent. The verse began with Ki gadol Mordecai. For was great Mordecai. Now it ends with ki haish Mordecai holek begadol. For this man Mordecai went and great. It is taking the words of the first clause and turning them into a superlative. He increased, he became greater and greater, even to great prominence. In America, he would be the person most likely to be nominated as the next president of the nation. It is because of the great prominence of Mordecai that, verse 5, thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who hated them. The verse consists solely of three verbs and eight nouns. Two words are used here for the very first time. The first is the noun form hereg of a more familiar verb. It indicates a slaughter. The second word is Abdan, found only here in the whole Bible. It is also a noun signifying a destruction. One can hear the similarity to Abaddon, or the proper name of the place of destruction mentioned in Revelation chapter 9. In using these nouns, it shows that they did more than just strike, slaughter, and destroy. They accomplished a stroke resulting in slaughter and destruction. Their work was complete in its intended scope. In this, they had complete control over the battle against those whom they fought. This verse is also an implicit reference to the futility of divination in order to meet one's goals. The entire premise of Haman casting the poor, or the lot, was to determine the most advantageous day for the destruction of the Jews. And yet, on that supposedly advantageous day, the Jews gained the victory. In this, the attempts of those who try to conjure up designs against the Lord and his plans are shown to be worthless. And this verse here brings in another set of twos into the book. It is the two times which are authorized for the Jews to take vengeance on their enemies in the citadel of Shushan. This one will go from here until verse 12, and then the next will go from verse 13 to verse 15. The two contrast in that one was in response to a royal edict mandating the destruction of the Jews, and one was not. But the two confirm that the enemies of the Jews will be destroyed completely and sufficiently according to what God has ordained. He is great in the palace of the king, and those he favors rejoice in his royal authority. Peace and joy to those he favors does he bring. He protects his people even against an evil majority. His people shall prevail, they shall be set free, and in freedom they shall find peace and rest. None shall them assail. He will defend gloriously, even when his people are from all sides oppressed. Great is he in the palace of the king. Great is his splendor and his royal authority. Happiness and contentment to his people he shall bring, and it is they who will forevermore be in the majority. Our second thought today is victory over the enemy. It's verses 6 through 17. Verse 6, And in Shushan the citadel, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. The word birah, or citadel, is used, but it is certainly indicating the city in which the citadel resides. There would be no tolerance for bloodshed within the citadel itself, and with 500 killed, it means that more than double that would have been involved. Thus it is expressive of the city proper, not merely the citadel. Of this verse, Adam Clark states... It is strange that in this city where the king's mind must have been so well known, that there should be found 500 persons to rise up in hostility against those whom they knew the king befriended. Well, this would only be strange if one assumes, as Adam Clark does elsewhere, that these people first rose against the Jews, and that the Jews were not the aggressors. However, there's nothing to indicate this. Haman was an Amalekite. It is to be presumed that throughout the empire Amalekites were dispersed, just as the Jews were. The ancient enmity meant that on this day it was kill or be killed. Both factions had every reason to use this day, authorized by the king, in separate edicts to destroy one another. The prophecy against Amalek would be fulfilled, and a part of that fulfillment was to come about through the events of the book of Esther. The enemies of God and the people of God are in a great struggle until the end. Each will take every opportunity to destroy the other until the battle is complete. Thus, in Shushan alone, 500 of the Jews' enemies were killed and destroyed. The number 500 is the sum of 10 and 50. 10, according to E.W. Bollinger, is the perfection of divine order, and 50 is the number of jubilee or deliverance. Thus, we have in this a picture of God's divine order being worked out in the deliverance of the Jews. This includes the destruction of an entire family of Amalekites. Verse 7, also, Parshendatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, the first three sons of Haman. All three are only named here. The only name that can be identified with any meaning at all is Dalphon. His name is possibly tied to the Hebrew word Dalaf, which means to weep or to drip. Verse 8, Puratha, Adalia, Aridatha. These three names here are only found this one time in the Bible. They are of Persian origin and their meanings are completely uncertain or dubious at best. Verse 9, Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vejazatha. These final names are found only this once in the Bible as well. Like the others, they are of Persian origin and their meanings are uncertain or dubious. It should be noted that in the Hebrew Bible... The names of these ten sons are written not right to left, as is normal, but each name is written one below the next vertically. It is an unusual occurrence and various reasons have been suggested for this. One is to give prominence to their names, thus facilitating their computation. That's the scholar Kyle, I don't see that. Another is that it signifies that they were hanged on the one pole, one above another at fixed distances. This makes sense, being written one on top of the other as if arranged on a single pole, thus it gives special credence to the actual height of Haman's gallows, and that all ten could have been hung from it in this way. Additionally, there are several unusually sized letters in these sons' names. In the Masoretic text, which is the standard text of the Hebrews, which has been used for eons, there are letters which are found in the second The seventh and the tenth names which are made smaller than the others and the first letter of the last name is written larger than the others okay it is a curiosity that many people have attempted to find a secret meaning in the most common interpretation of this and you're going to see this all over Jewish websites is that the small letters represent the year 707 that is Tav Shin Zayin it equals the year 707 Of the sixth millennium, which is represented by the large Vav, which equals six. Thus, you have the Jewish date 5707. It's like us. We have the 19th century is actually the uh, 2000s, or I'm sorry, the 1800s. It's not the same year. So the sixth millennium is actually the 5000th year. I want you to understand that. And so what that would equal is the Jewish date 5707 or 1946 by our modern calendar. It is on 1 October of 1946 or the 6th of Tishri 5707 on the Jewish calendar that the Nuremberg Military Tribunal tried 10 Nazis and sentenced them to death by hanging for their modern Hamanism, meaning coming against the Jews. One of them, the notorious Julius Stryker, is even said to have cried out as his last words, "Peremfest 1946. There are several problems with this though. First, I know because I have a copy of the Masoretic Text, and so I went through all of the names. There are actually four small letters, including two small tavs in the names, not one. Thus, this is actually a choose-what-you-want-to-make-something-say-that-doesn't-actually-exist scenario. Secondly, various other manuscripts give different letters which are smaller. And thirdly... These people in Germany were hung for more than just crimes against the Jews, but for all sorts of war crimes, and others from World War II were hung for war crimes as well. In this, we find the common error of people looking for the Bible to fit an account rather than the account fitting the details of the Bible. I will explain the meaning of the hanging of these ten in our final sermon. Verse 10, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. Here, the ten named individuals are noted for their connection to Haman, and Haman is noted with his connection to his own father, Hamadatha. The link between them is Haman, noted as the enemy of the Jews. It can be surmised that the ten sons of Haman had attempted to take revenge for the death of their father, but that only turned back on their own heads as well. All ten died in the process. As ten is the number of perfection of divine order, There appears in this the thought of the perfection of divine order, even in the destruction of the ten sons of Haman. As hard as that may be for us to imagine, it appears that such is the case, and you will see this in the final sermon. Their destruction fit a particular part of God's plan for the preservation of the Jews, a plan which went so far and no further. This is seen in the next words. Verse 10 continues, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. The Jews, according to the edict, had a right to plunder their enemies, but they chose to not exercise this right. They merely sought deliverance from their foes and vengeance upon their enemies and nothing more. The battle was won not for profit or for plunder, but for protection and self-preservation. In this, nobody could accuse them of profiting off of what had occurred. This precedent was seen earlier in their forefather, Abraham. Many, many centuries earlier, actually. Here's what it says in Genesis chapter 14. But Avram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men who went with me, Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Verse 11, on that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. The record of those lost in the battle is normally meticulously recorded, such as the case here. Despite being an internal war, the number of subjects lost would be very important to the king to know the state of the empire, what type of animosity existed, and if something more was needed to correct the matter. What is striking, however, is that only the number of non-Jews is recorded. The number of Jews having died is not mentioned at all. Verse 12. And the king said to Queen Esther, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the 10 sons of Haman. After being informed of the scope of the slaughter in Shushan, the king passes the details on to Esther. As reports within the kingdom, which stretched from India all the way to Ethiopia, would take up to even weeks to arrive, he can only mentally calculate what the total number of subjects who died would be. Assuming a similar amount in the other 127 provinces and probably an even greater number in the land of Canaan, he then proceeds with, verse 12 continuing, what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? It is either here a rhetorical question for Esther to ponder the magnitude of the slaughter, which some translations put a question mark after it, or it is an exclamatory statement to highlight the same, and so they have an exclamation point after it. Either way, the king has shown the greatness of the engagement in the citadel alone before making an offering for even greater allowances for his queen and her people. Verse 12 continues, Now what is your petition? It shall be granted to you. Or what is your further request? It shall be done. The king indicates that he has fully and sufficiently granted her request and given her all that she had hoped for. But he graciously then offers her even more with the words, What is your further request? This offer of the desires of her heart is because what happened and what had been determined by Haman was as much his fault as Haman's. Now, with the first edict over and dispensed with, thus meeting his initial repentance through Mordecai's edict, he offers her the granting of an altogether new request, not based on any type of retribution at all. Thus, the first grant to her was one of mercy, While this one is a grant of special favor, it is a grant of grace. The word bakasha, or request, has been seen eight times, once in the book of Ezra and seven times here in Esther. We will now retire it from the Bible with the playing of taps. Okay, I'm not going to do that. We're just going to bid it goodbye, and we're going to go on to the next verse. Verse 13, then Esther said, if it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow, according to today's decree. Some scholars are particularly horrified at Esther's request, finding it hard to imagine that a woman would have such an attitude and such a strongly determined streak of violence within her. That is a complete misunderstanding of the situation, and it holds far too romantic a view of human nature. Esther and her people were threatened with extermination by Haman. The enemy of the Jews had plotted their demise and surely reveled in it coming to pass. With the advancement of a second edict, their designs were frustrated and even went into retreat. It is not unlikely that those who had once thought to destroy the Jews and who openly taunted them had actually gone into hiding on the day of slaughter. With the royal edict passed, they could go about life happily hating the Jews once again, waiting for their own moment to strike. However, this state of contentment would be foiled by the passing of a new edict, one so fresh that many would be unaware that it had even been published, but every Jew would be informed of it. Thus, it was an exceptional idea of Esther to put forth this request. It is comparable to what occurred with Joseph Mengele, Adolf Eichmann, and others who fled Germany and went to Argentina after World War II. When faced with their own destruction, they went into hiding. Esther wanted to ensure that those who were in Shushan, who spent the day hiding, would be routed out and exterminated. But she had more on her mind. Verse 13 continues, and let Haman's ten sons be hanged on the gallows. This was one tradition of the Jews that would be universally known hanging a person on a tree as a sign of a curse. It goes back to the book of Deuteronomy. Here's what it says there. If a man has committed a sin deserving of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree... His body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance for he who is hanged is accursed of God. Now, I want you to know that in the New Testament, Paul takes that verse and he applies it to Jesus Christ. So please keep that in mind as you're considering what the book of Esther is telling us. The law of removing the body from a tree only applied within Israel, their inherited land. The law says nothing of taking them down outside of the land, so they may have hung there one day or until they were nothing but bones. However, their hanging would be a sign to the Jews of the curse upon their enemies, and it would be a sign to all others of the disgrace and the terror which would be meted out as punishment against such offenders in the future. The punishment of the children for the iniquity of their fathers is actually prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 14. It is a warning against the king of Babylon, but many have taken the passage to refer to Satan himself. However, this is unlikely. Rather, it is more comparable to the one who epitomizes Satan on earth, the Antichrist. Thus, what we are seeing here in Esther is a foreshadowing of what lies ahead for him. Isaiah's words thus state, All the kings of the nations, all of them sleep in glory. Everyone in his own house, but you are cast out of your grave like an abominable branch, like the garment of those who are slain, thrust through with the sword, who go down to the stones of the pit, like a corpse trodden underfoot. You will not be joined with them in burial, because you have destroyed your land and slain your people. The brood of evildoers shall never be named. Prepare slaughter for his children, because of the iniquity of their fathers, lest they rise up and possess the land and fill the face. Of the world with cities. This equating of what is occurring in Esther as a prophetic picture of the future is almost completely ignored by older scholars. But John Lang had an inkling of it, which is much worthy of note. Here's what he says That the Jews really executed this climax of punishment may indicate the especially severe judgment that will overtake those who are the principal agents of Antichrist on earth. And thus illustrates the truth that opposition against whatever is antagonistic to goodness and piety must rise till it reaches its overwhelming acme. This is a principle valid even for Christians, that they must be in a hostile attitude to evil to the last degree. Verse 14, so the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons. The decree was for the additional day of slaughter, whereas the hanging would have come simply by the word of the king. The king agreed to Esther's request and granted it without amendment or protest. The victory over the foes of the Jews, particularly the Amalekites, would be effective and their disgrace would be seen by all. This continues to be seen with the next words. Verse 15, and the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together on the 14th day of the month of Adar and killed 300 men at Shushan. The number 300 is not specifically defined by E.W. Bollinger, but its component parts are. 10, we've already seen it, is the perfection of divine order, whereas 30 is a higher degree of the same. Thus, not only is there a sense of jubilee and divine perfection in the 500 killed, but there is a higher sense of that divine perfection with the killing of these additional 300. In total, 800 were killed in Shushan. Eight in the Bible is the number of new beginnings, which is combined with divine perfection squared. In what is pictured in Esther, it is an appropriate number to record what lies ahead for Israel. Verse 15 continues, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Again, the words here reflect the Jews' determination to not tie the death of their enemies in with profit or plunder, but for protection and self-preservation. This ends the set of twos which came earlier in this passage, the two times which are authorized for the Jews to take vengeance on their enemies in the citadel of Shushan. The two contrast in that one was in response to a royal edict mandating the destruction of the Jews, and one was not. But the two confirm that the enemies of the Jews will be destroyed completely and sufficiently according to what God has ordained. Verse 16, the remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. The verse appears highly unusual in its structure, and scholars struggle over why it is written as it is. It first notes that the Jews not in Shushan gathered together and protected their lives. No problem so far. This would have occurred on or before the 13th of the month. It then says that they had rest from their enemies. This seemingly would have occurred on or after the 14th of the month. It then seems to revert to the events on the 13th of the month by saying that they killed 75,000 in their slaughter. However, the word rest is a noun. It's not a verb. It is used only two times in the whole Bible. Once in 2 Chronicles 6 verse 41 when speaking of the resting place of the Lord. I hope you'll remember that. It's important. And the other here is an Esther. What it appears to be saying is that in this gathering and slaughtering of their enemies, they had rest. The edict of Mordecai granted them the right to gather, provided them rest, and allowed them to kill their enemies. They had entered their rest even before their enemies were destroyed. It is reflective of the state of Christians today remember our text verse Hebrews 4 3 says for those that believe we have entered our rest and guess what it's a noun in the Greek and yet we are still actively engaged in a spiritual battle in this life everybody understand that Hebrews 4 3 now we who believe have entered our rest Charlie Garrett has a place of rest on Siesta Key but I don't rest I've entered my place of rest, but I am not in my rest. Everybody got that? Okay. It's important to understand when words are used in the Bible, they are used for a reason. God wastes no space and no words ever. And when he takes a word in the noun form that is used only one other time in the whole Bible and says that it applies to the resting place of the Lord, you should probably pay attention to that. We are Christians. We have entered our rest because of Jesus Christ. Hence, we worship on Sunday. We don't meet on the Sabbath day. We're not Seventh day Adventists. We're not people that say we have to go back under the law of Moses. If you want to know about the the pictures that are in this that we've seen today, it's all going to be explained in our last sermon. It's all going to be explained in one way or another. Now, I'm going to tell you this before I go on because we talked about this at lunch yesterday. There are 5,000 points in the book of Esther. I can only give you a broad outline of those 5,000 points. I'm going to give you the main ones. I've got most of the minor points also detailed and laid out in my head, but I am not going to go through them, unfortunately, because we'd have a sermon that was 25 hours long. I've got to do it in one sermon. Chris said, why don't you do it in two sermons? Because it would never work. You'd be left hanging in the middle of a sermon. The next week you'd come back and you'd not remember anything that I had said. So you're going to get a broad outline of what is coming but I assure you that you'll be able to get the little pieces in your head if you know the broader outline, okay? Verse 16 continues, but they did not lay a hand on the plunder. Again, like those Jews who were in Shushan, this exceptional note of restraint is stated. The Jews did not initiate the conflict, they did not ask for it, but they were willing to see it through and yet not profit off of it, even though they had a right to do so. Verse 17, this was on the 13th day of the month of Adar. These words support the thoughts of the previous verse. They refer to the previous verse, all of which occurred on the 13th day, including the rest which the people had entered. This is then confirmed by the final words of the day. Verse 17 finishes with, and on the 14th of the month, they rested and made a day of feasting and gladness. There is a place of rest, verse 16, and there is a state of rest, verse 17, The Jews of the provinces entered a place of rest even if they did not enter into a state of rest. They now unite the state with the place. It says on the 14th of Adar, they rested, a verb. It says that in their rest, they made it a day of feasting and gladness. However, as has been seen all the way throughout Esther, the word feast is Mishte. It is a feast of banqueting. Okay, it's a feast of drinking. There would be immense joy. Wine would flow freely, and the people would have the burdens of this life lifted off of their shoulders as they were finally freed of the threat of the enemies which had haunted them for so very long. With just two sermons left, we continue to see the hidden hand of the Lord working continuously behind the scenes in order to deliver his people. Esther has been chosen as the queen of the realm. Mordecai has been placed in an exalted position. Esther's petition has been granted to work against the decree of Haman, and the enemies of the Jews have been brought to their end. All of this could be chalked up to time and chance, with the exception that it had already been said that these things would occur. Not all of the details, of course, but the overall promises of protection in life. And so, like always in Scripture, the result of what has come about is ultimately left up to one word for us to consider. That word is faith. God has done all of the things that He has done since the creation in such a way that it takes faith to believe. The earth looks old, but the Bible says it's young. Where is your faith? The Lord promises destruction by flood, but the skies are sunny. Where is your faith? The Lord says he is our defender, but we are hemmed in by our enemies. Where is your faith? The boat is sinking, but the Lord is right there with you. Where is your faith? The word is written, but the resurrection of a dead man? That seems impossible. Where is your faith? The Bible doesn't say it is easy to believe, but it does ask us to do so. God looks for faith in his faithless creatures, and so just a little bit will do. Will we chalk up the defeat of our enemy to our own goodness and skill like Israel is still doing to this day? Or will we call out to the Lord in thanks and praise? In the end, the only thing that we can give God is our faith. Loving God requires faith that he exists. Praising God requires faith that he is listening. Praying to God through Jesus Christ implies that we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you have never made the commitment of faith in him that God is looking for, today is the day. Have faith and be saved from the wrath which is sure to otherwise come. God would have you saved and with him rather than lost and cast away. Call on him. It is that simple. And just so you understand the premise, the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. We know that. We don't have to teach our children to do wrong. They already know to do wrong. Sin is an infection in us, and it says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin in us. The Bible speaks of two types of death. It speaks first of spiritual death. It's a disconnect from God. We are completely separated from God the moment that sin entered into the world. There is no fellowship between God and man because of sin. And then there is the second type of death that the Bible speaks of, and that's what we all know about. We all know about the fact that we're going to die. They say, we talked about this on Thursday, there are only two things that are certain, death and taxes. Well, I tell you what, people get out of taxes all the time. Usually they end up in jail, but you're not getting out of death. And if you don't get the first death, the spiritual death taken care of before the second death, which is your physical death, you'll be dead and spiritually separated from God for all eternity. That's what the Bible proclaims. But then it goes on with that beautiful three letter word, but, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, the sinless son of God came and lived the sinless life that you and I cannot live. And he gave his life up as the Bible allows the doctrine of substitution. Something can die in something else's place that's seen in the old Testament sacrificial system. And he is the fulfillment of that system. He gave up his perfect life in exchange for our miserable, sin filled, worthless lives. What an honor to think that we could accept that and that God would grant us his righteousness. And that's what God has done. He has offered us his righteousness, the righteousness of God himself because of what Jesus Christ did. And then he takes our sins and they are buried with Christ. They are never remembered again. It says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That's what he asks us to do. Call on his name, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Because he had no sin, he had to come out of the grave, and you will be saved. That's that's what God asks of us. So please, if you've never done it before, take a simple step forward into the revealed light of God's glory and say, I accept Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Psalm 68. It's verses 34 and 35. Ascribe strength to God. His excellence is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. Oh God, you are more awesome than your holy places. The God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be God. Wonderful stuff. Now, you know what? Somebody actually goes through these sermons, and they look at all the stuff, and they find all my errors. Last week, a girl from New Zealand emailed me. I'm sure it was her. I'm thinking of the right person with the right email, and she said, you put Psalm 91, and it's actually Psalm 96 for my closing verse. Well, that's my fat fingers typing wrong, but anyway, I hope I got that one right, Psalm 68, verses 34 and 35. (laughs) Next week, we have Esther 9, 18 through 32. The Jews prevailed, though their chances looked slim. And so they call them the days of Purim. That'll be our 12th Esther sermon. What's that? So he said something anyway. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. At times, you might feel as if he has no great design for you in life. But he has brought you to this moment to reveal his glory in and through you. So follow him and trust him. And he'll do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Short poem and we'll be done. It's called Rest from Their Enemies. Now in the twelfth month, that is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day, a date not disputed, the time came for the king's command and his decree to be executed. On the day that the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, as is stated, the opposite occurred, in that the Jews themselves overpowered those who them had hated. The Jews gathered together in their cities, gathering even from field and farm, throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm." And no one could withstand them, so the account does tell, because fear of them upon all people fell. And all the officials of the provinces, the satraps, the governors as well, and all those who do the king's work helped the Jews, because the fear of Mordecai upon them fell. For Mordecai was great in the king's palace, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces. For this man Mordecai became increasingly prominent, so the account to us says." Thus the Jews defeated all their enemies with the stroke of the sword, as is stated, with slaughter and destruction, and did what they pleased with those who them had hated. And in Shushan the citadel, there and then, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men. Also, Parshandatha, Dalphon, Aspatha, Puratha, Adalia, Aridatha, too. Parmashta, Arisai, Aridai, and Vejazatha, to them was bid Tata and adieu. <laughs> the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, they killed. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. It was enough that their blood was spilled. On that day, the number of those who were killed in Shushan the citadel was brought to the king. To him, the stats they did tell. And the king said to Queen Esther, The Jews have killed a." Adu- destroyed 500 men in Shushan the citadel and the 10 sons of Haman what have they done in the rest of the king's provinces now what is your petition it shall be granted to you or what is your further request it shall be done speak as to what you desire me to do then Esther said, If it pleases the king, let it be granted to the Jews who are in Shushan to do again tomorrow according to today's decree, and let be hanged on the gallows the ten sons of Haman. So the king commanded this to be done. The decree was issued in Shushan, and they hanged Haman's ten sons, yes, each and every one. And the Jews who were in Shushan gathered together again on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and killed three hundred men at Shushan. But they did not lay on the plunder a hand. They only killed their enemies, so we are to understand. The remainder of the Jews in the king's provinces gathered together and protected their lives, had rest from their enemies, truly a wonder, and killed 75,000 of their enemies. But they did not lay a hand on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th of the month they rested and made it a day of feasting and gladness, both near and far. Lord God... Thank you for your presence that is with us, even when we don't realize that you are there. Because you sent your own son, Jesus, we can know that you truly do care. And so, Lord, be real to us in a wonderful new way. Open our minds and our hearts to seeing you always. Through every step we take and throughout every day, be real to us, O God, and to you we shall give all of our praise. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have entered our place of rest in Jesus Christ. Even though we're in a spiritual battle, we're battling the forces of the wickedness of the world and Satan himself at times, but you are there with us and we are in our place of rest because of that. And someday we will actually enter into a state of rest along with that. All of our labors will be behind us and we will be in your presence, worshiping you, glorifying you, praising you and serving you for all of eternity. And what an honor that is. We thank you for that. We thank you for the sure hope that we possess because of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, you know that we have Linda who is sick, and we would certainly pray for her right now, praying that she's over her sickness. And if not, that you would uh, just help her along until she gets better. And I certainly pray for Hedico, who's going through all kinds of her own sickness right now, that you would be with her and help her to get better. And Lord, we just thank you for this precious word. We thank you for all of the wonderful things you've done for us in our lives. And we want to give you praise and glory and honor for all you've done because you are worthy of it. And we pray it in Jesus' beautiful name, amen.